You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Today, Representative Ed Case joins us live to hear what concerns you. He's back here at home as the House is in recess. Good to see you, Congressman. Good morning. Aloha. Good to be back. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we know that uh, the infrastructure bill is kind of top of mind. But before we get to that, I know I think we should just acknowledge that we're in the throes of this surge with the Delta variant. I mean, how are you looking at this? I'm looking at this the same way I've been looking at it all the way along. This is a public health crisis. It's a public health epidemic. It has to be treated from a public health perspective. Uh, Here in Hawaii, we've done a pretty good job of doing that uh, throughout the last uh, terrible uh, year and a half. Um, As we saw many, many other states try to figure that they could solve the problem in some way other than public health. And so I think we I think we need to look back and say that we did the right things from a public health perspective. And tragically, the Delta variant is now with us. We have to deal with it. It's a reality. It's uh, still about public health. And we still have to make the decisions uh, based on what's good for the overall public health. And everything else needs to flow from that. You know, uh, Governor David Ige just announced new restrictions to limit social gatherings and other high risk activities You know, in light of the surge. Uh, and, you know, we've seen our hospitalizations increase. Uh, he had a news conference yesterday. Here's what he had to say. Our COVID-19 cases, case count in the islands has seen a significant spike recently. We are seeing widespread community transmission of COVID-19. In the month of July, we have seen the case counts double about every seven to 10 days. We are seeing transmission and clusters from people going to work, attending social gatherings, going to restaurants when they are sick. We need to take action and we need to take action now. We need to minimize person-to-person contact in order to reduce transmission. We do know that vaccines work and wearing masks work, but we all need to be committed to do our part to reduce the spread of COVID-19. We do know that the bulk of cases that make it to the hospitals are in unvaccinated individuals. That's why we've made a big effort to make the vaccine widely available and provide all the information that you might need in order to make an informed decision for yourself. You know, the governor, you know, made those comments, uh, uh, you know, after talking with uh, healthcare officials, uh, I know you've been in contact with the uh, folks here locally. Um, what are they telling you? Well, <clears throat> I think it's necessary. Um, again, <clears throat> you know, we're not dealing with the world the way we want it. We're dealing with the world the way it is. And d- the Delta variant is here. It's highly contagious. Uh, it's highly infectious. Uh, yes, we have one of the higher vaccination rates in the country, but we have a large portion of our population that is unvaccinated. They are completely susceptible to the Delta variant, and it is hitting them now. Um, and and you, you have to look at that and ask yourself what, what has to be done, um, not only to protect those individuals, but the people around them, the communities around them, and, and, and the state overall. And so, uh, you know, nobody likes to go back to tougher restrictions. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I think the governor is doing the right thing. You know, we just look across the country uh, at the division and the strife, uh, you know, over the mandates on vaccines and masks and it's almost like we're we're in a, a worse situation than we were a year and a half ago. I mean, we did. There were a lot of unknowns at the time. We know more, but just the the pushback, I think, is to me very sad. 
Well, I mean, uh, the bottom line has always been that if you get to a, to a great level of vaccination as soon as possible, that just accelerates a recovery that much faster. And uh, we got to a pretty good level of vaccination early on, and then it started to lag. And then there was a lot of misinformation out there about uh, vaccinations, a lot of resistance. Uh, and so we're not at the point we need to be where we can start opening up, especially with mutations like uh, the Delta variant. Again, that's the reality of public health. It's not something I like. It's not. It's not a political issue. It's not a. It's not a. You know. Uh, of course, it has an impact on our economy and on our communities. But if you don't solve the public health side of it first, um, you don't get to solve the rest of it. You know, I just walked through Waikiki uh, yesterday, and yeah, it it, uh, it it is just incredibly packed, uh, and it is. Uh, it, it's positive for the businesses that that are struggling. Uh, you know to get their employees back to work. Uh, and we are seeing, you know, some of that rebound a bit. But uh, you were just down in Waikiki recently. I too. was just there uh, Friday with uh, Council uh, Chair Tommy Waters. Uh, he and I share Waikiki as, as part of our, our district. So we were, um, you know, basically doing what we should be doing, which is trying to get a sense of what's happening on the ground, uh, you know, what, what folks are doing, how they're adjusting to it. And it was packed. It was, you know, pre-COVID uh, levels um, just all over the beach. I talked to a number of the tourists. They were happy to be here. They had absolutely no problem with the restrictions on on coming into Hawaii. Um, and let's let's uh, let's be straight about this. Um, the, the 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 resurgence uh, that we are seeing in Hawaii right now is largely not the tourists. It's us. Um, and uh, so if if you know we can't go out there and blame the tourists for bringing COVID nineteen here. It's it's us circulating it around in unvaccinated communities. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we have watched how each island is dealing with this. Uh, you know, some islands have clamped down early with tougher restrictions uh, and are managing. You know, on the big island, we're seeing, unfortunately, the cases rise again over there. Uh, Maui's had uh, struggles just because they've been overloaded with, uh, with so many visitors, uh, and the infrastructure just uh, can't handle that. Uh, we did get a call from a listener from uh, Maui, just a concern uh, from a small business. Here's what he had to say. Aloha, my name is Joey, Haiku Maui. I know quite a number of restaurant owners. I enjoy visiting their restaurants, and I uh, just got the news that they're cutting back now 50% capacity, and they were just barely, barely starting to get back on their feet and get caught up with all of their expenses. And now this 50% cutback is going to set them back again. And I can't help asking the obvious question of the idea that it's all for me and none for thee when I saw pictures of Obama's birthday, 60th birthday party, 400 or 500 people there dancing, having a great old time, no masks. You know, how is it that he doesn't have to comply to the to rules and all those people and celebrities, they don't have to comply, but these poor people that are just trying to get caught up, we all have to wear the mask. We all have to do the social distancing, cut back on the restaurant so that they fall behind again. You know, how is it that all the billionaires and the politicians and Obama made it very clear that this Delta variant is not dangerous. That's the message I got from that party. So, yeah, I'm mad, and I just wanted to pass that on. Thank you. 
people are well, just so frustrated. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> mad and frustrated too, uh, Joey. Um, I I am disgusted that we're having to at, at the at the year and a half mark uh, in Hawaii after doing, as I said earlier, I think a good job relative to the rest of the country on trying to deal with uh, COVID-19 as a public health crisis and and to take the necessary precautions and restrictions, which I think most of us understood we needed to do. Um, that we're back in this uh, situation again. And so I completely hear the frustration. As to restaurants and any other of our small businesses in particular that are so focused on travel and tourism, uh, we have tried very hard at the congressional level to provide um, both general assistance and uh, very targeted assistance to our restaurants, specifically in this case, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. Uh, We have um, sent uh, somewhere in the range of $20 billion from Congress to Hawaii to help out with a broad range of issues to include our small businesses. And so, yes, it's very frustrating that with all of that aid and trying to tide people through the worst of COVID-19 when our travel and tourism industry was down 95%, uh, to have to go back to these restrictions is something that uh, is is deeply frustrating, but I think it is also um, necessary, I must say to you. Uh, you know, I don't know what happened at the Obama birthday party. Um, I don't know whether there were 400 and 600 people dancing. I had thought, frankly, that they had a much more limited uh, group and um, that the requirement was that everybody was vaccinated for that party. Um, that is under the law of Massachusetts, um, that there are different uh, standards in place, and I don't think anybody should be exempt from the standards. So. I'm not going to defend uh, President Obama if, in fact, they were violating the laws and standards of Massachusetts or, for that matter, the CDC uh, concerns. Um, But, um, you know, we all have to we all have to deal with this uh, from a public health perspective and and do what is necessary for our communities. And uh, we did get another uh, listener right in. Christina from Maui thinks that these steps should be taken to limit transmission State of Hawaii should mandate that any passenger on a plane arriving in the islands is vaccinated and that all windows and doors should be open for businesses open to the public. Well, I, I was one of the earliest to, to call for testing simply to get on the airplanes. Uh, and that was from personal experience. I was going I've been going back and forth to Washington for a year and a half now uh, through through the through the through the entirety of the pandemic. And, and it was outrageous to me in the beginning that there was no test requirement uh, to get on a plane. Um, and so I fought very hard for that. Uh, now, we did institute uh, the requirement that you either had to be vaccinated or tested negative to come into Hawaii to start with, other than, and if you weren't, then you had needed to quarantine. Frankly, I, I, I would have said uh, that you, you have no option to quarantine because that was, that was ignored by way too much. But we've done a better job of that than the, than the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really trying now to get our numbers down. I think they're still still in the, you know, three-digit, 400 range uh, today, according to the LG. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. And, uh, uh, yeah, everybody's got to do their part. You know, let's uh, talk about the infrastructure bill because, uh, you know, part of this pandemic uh, crisis that we're in, you know, it, it's the health crisis, but it's all the ec- economic crisis. And lawmakers have been trying to keep our economy afloat. Uh, so w- what are your thoughts as, as the Senate has uh, given the nod to this? I think it is critical for us to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill out of Congress and give it to the president as soon as possible. Um, and I think that it's critical not only because uh, our, our nation and our state need, desperately need, Uh, assistance with our, in many cases, literally crumbling infrastructure. Uh, And this bill that the Senate passed just days ago on a 69, um, you know, 
69 votes out of the Senate, which is unheard of for the Senate to pass something of this magnitude with that level of uh, a majority support. So obviously it was bipartisan. Um, that is critically needed uh, for our state, for our country. And what is critically needed, even more important, uh, the infrastructure itself is that folks out there desperately want their government to work. They desperately want us to overcome our partisan divides and get things done for the country. And that's what um, the Senate did. And that's what the president has been advocating. So, you know, um, um, I recognize him for his for his steadfast support of a bipartisan bill that could come out of Congress. That's what we did. Um, I certainly was working and am working with folks uh, like minded colleagues on both sides of the aisle in the U.S. House towards that end. And so it's important for us to deliver on the promise that government can work. Uh, And it is almost even more important for us to make sure that we don't muck it up uh, so that people's hopes of, of government working are dashed even worse. And so this, this idea that we would um, you know, c- combine the bipartisan infrastructure bill with other stuff and condition it and, and not accelerate it straight through the House to the president, I'm not on board with that. Well, you were on a caucus call uh, just a short while ago uh, with the Senator uh, House Speaker uh, Pelosi. Uh, what's the snapshot of where things are? Well, what I've just described uh, is, 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 is me differing with my own speaker on the direction that we should take uh, because uh, the speaker wants to hold up the bipartisan infrastructure package uh, to, to pass out of the House and the Senate a, 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 an even larger uh, package at $3.5 trillion. Um, and, and I disagree with her on that. I think we should pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill now. It's right in front of us. Um, it's there for the taking. Um, it's what the American people want by a vast majority. Um, and frankly, the $3.5 trillion package is, is, is very um, problematic in both the House and the Senate. It needs a lot of work if it's even going to pass. Um, and so, you know, to kind of hold up the infrastructure bill, which you can get done right away, um, to, to t- kind of take a chance that you can finish another bill, that doesn't make sense to me. So, so you know, I'm one of the folks that um, in this particular case, I just don't agree with my, with where my leadership is going. And I'm, I'm going to try to pass a bipartisan infrastructure package as soon as I can. Do you have uh, uh, support from uh, other representatives? Yes. I mean, this? there's 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 many of us who feel the same way. Uh, we're just going to have to kind of navigate a little bit through the legislative process. And, and uh, we, we need to do a lot of talking with each other. I've been on countless calls on this subject just in the last 48 hours, not just the caucus call. And so I'm hopeful that we will come to some understanding that, um, um, you know, we need to we need to get this one done, and then also an understanding on on what to do with the next uh, the next packages. Well, there is concern, you know, oh, with uh, uh, our debt and and what we're paying for. I mean, we know we've got to we've we've got to keep the system up and keep it running and going. Uh, but what's it going to cost us? Well, that's that's one of my major concerns with both both bills. We we have seen our our national debt go from twenty three to twenty eight trillion dollars in. In, in 18 months, that was because of COVID-19. 23 to $28 trillion, uh, and it took you know 200 plus years to get to $23 trillion, and, and we just went up another five. Um, and so you know to go out there and, and actually borrow even more money from, from the current and next generations for, for um, areas that, that are not directly related to a COVID-19 emergency is not something that I can support. And so um, it's very important to me that these large packages um, do have a pay-for element, and that's a tough—that's uh, a tough um, political and legislative and policy call because. 
That means stuff that people feel very strongly about, like um, not allowing the Trump tax cuts to continue um, anymore, resuming uh, levels that uh, predated uh, uh, President Trump, which I personally have no problem doing. And uh, I I, uh, was scanning the headlines this morning and, you know, there are a number of uh, Democrats, I think, even uh, in the in the Senate that uh, have issue with what they passed and and, you know, the reconciliation bill and and how this is all going to work. And that's why it's so important for us to try to make the bipartisan bill work, because it was a true compromise. Um, Nobody got everything they wanted in that bill, but it did pass the Senate, Uh, frankly, by advocating for um, the passage of the Senate's. Uh, product in the House unamended so it can get right to the president and get passed. I'm giving up stuff that that that, you know, I wanted in in the in the in the uh, infrastructure package. But I, I feel that that's necessary for the country. And and um, as as our two senators pointed out uh, in, in some uh, media that they did this morning, the Senate bill itself will produce a heck of a lot of money for us to use here for infrastructure of one way, shape or form. Uh like what? Can you tick down the list? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, the obvious stuff, roads, bridges, um, you know, sewers, harbors, um, airports. I'm sure you're going to ask me about rail. <laughs> yes. Um, it is possible it could be used for rail, but I don't think any of us in the congressional delegation would, would suggest uh, that we simply throw some of that infrastructure uh, money at a at, a, at, at, at heart or the rail system until we really do get to the bottom of uh, what the future of, of rail is and how we pay for it. So, right. And, and so neither fast. is the federal government interested uh, in doing that. Um, but beyond um, those uh, areas, uh, the infrastructure bill also um, uh, would, would target uh, major funding uh, for, for other areas that are not always part of a federal infrastructure bill, for example, fixing schools, which oftentimes is uh, usually is a state and county responsibility, or broadband. Uh, we have uh, throughout Hawaii many, many parts of Hawaii with very spotty, if any, broadband. And we saw during COVID-19 that from a telehealth, from a telework, from a teleeducation perspective, if you don't have your broadband down, your options are very, very limited. So we've got to fix that broadband. That's in that bill. Yeah, uh, you know, the infrastructure, the modernization of our computers at the labor department the tax department i mean we just saw what happened with all the unemployment claims you know and and we're still digging out from under that uh you know so hopefully some of that money is in there that we it's could a use. it's a very very flexible uh, package <clears throat> and it was b- by intent we we intended to broaden the 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 usual definition of infrastructure so we weren't just talking about um, um, you know, like I said earlier, like, you know, paving on highways and, and um, you know, uh, the transportation infrastructure is a broader concept of infrastructure. So, yes, it could encompass some of those. And uh, uh, you had mentioned that you might have to give up on some things that, that uh, you had you know, maybe champion for, I don't know, what, what types of things? Well, you know, uh, in the, on the House side, in the surface transportation bill, we were given a very limited uh, ability this time around to do some uh, community project funding, so uh, specific uh, funding to specific uh, projects um, here, here in Hawaii. Uh, in the big picture, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was important to those projects. For example, uh, one of the projects that was in the House-passed version uh, of this bill, um, uh, all of my surface transportation requests were in that bill, and uh, one of them, for example, was to was to extend uh, the the Pearl Harbor Bikeway Trail, which is important to my district and to, and to some of my 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 partners in state and county government. If we passed the Senate version of the bill, um, we'd have to find another way to do that. 
Um, so I would be giving up um, for the sake of the country and for Hawaii overall some of my own specific priorities. But I think that's something that I, I should be doing in this situation. It's because it's the And the because I picture. think there's another way that I can get it done. I can get it done through the Appropriations Committee where I, I serve. So, you know, there's I have alternatives. Right. Uh, but, but you think you're going to be able to garner enough support um, for some of the concerns that you have uh, if leadership is, uh, you know, not inclined to, to take up the infrastructure bill this month? Well, um, well, we'll find that on the next couple of weeks. We're all scheduled to go back to Washington in, on August 23rd. Um, and I think between now and August 23rd, um, there is a lot of uh, stuff that will, you know, uh, we'll have to cross a lot of bridges between now and then. So I'm hopeful. Uh, we have another written comment from a listener, Brent, from Kaimuki, asks, is there any chance that money can be set aside in the infrastructure bill for hydroelectric dams on Oahu? Um, well, again, the infrastructure bill money is fairly broad. So a lot of those decisions are going to be up to the state and county governments to decide um, if they want to allocate it over to hydro. Um, you know, we, we do have hydro in Hawaii. It doesn't tend to be focused on Oahu, but it tends to be a bit pretty major power supply elsewhere. Like, for example, Kauai has probably the highest hydro, as I recall, in, in the state. And so um, there, I think there is sufficient discretion uh, for them to allocate uh, some of those infrastructure funds uh, uh, to, to, you know, water development, water supply and, de and, and energy supply and development. Uh, but, you know, let's, let's be straight. Um, there's a lot of demands for, for infrastructure, so there have to be some priorities established. But that will primar primarily be at the state and county levels. Yeah, I mean, I think here on Oahu, the one thing that I recall, there was some talk about a project maybe out on the North Shore. I think it was Kamehameha Schools land at one time, but I don't know where we're at with that. Um, so, But you think there's enough flexibility built in uh, with this? There's a lot of flexibility bill. built into the bipartisan infrastructure package that, that would enable a lot of um, 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 non-traditional uses of that money. Because I, I just think of, you know, the, the Big Island and that drive up Hamakua Coast, all those bridges, you know, and they are so old. Well, that's a, that's a problem across our entire country, and that's why the, the um, Senate bill actually calls out uh, 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 some of the road and bridge-related uh, infrastructure improvements specifically. So that's just a huge problem nationally. Well, if you're just joining the conversation, we are talking issues with Congressman Ed Case, who represents District 1, uh, located entirely on the island of Oahu. You can join the discussion by calling us, 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio helps keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for the conversation comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com. Oh, 
You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guests in studio, uh, Congressman Ed Case, and uh, you know you had mentioned uh, issues with the you know the military. Uh, We've been doing a number of stories on Red Hill, and I, I believe you put in some money in the appropriations bill to help with the upgrades and, and with plans there. Absolutely. I mean, Red Hill is a concern. It's a concern of mine. It should be a concern of everybody. Uh, we we have been working very closely with um, all of the parties cons- concerned. Uh, um, we've certainly been in touch with uh, uh, the U.S. Navy over the last uh, two and a half years to be absolutely sure that they understand the concerns of, of the citizens of Honolulu and that they're doing everything they possibly can to to um, assure the safety. And if they cannot assure the safety, then to phase it out. Um, and I have been working through my appropriations committee, um, especially my subcommittee on military construction, which is the one that does what it sounds like, all of military construction across the country, to be sure that they do have those resources uh, and those monies are in the bills that, we, that we've been passing. Um, beyond that, um, the, the military has spent, uh, I, I want to say somewhere in the range of $500 million over the last couple of years in various uh, maintenance and repair um, efforts um, um, at Red Hill in the normal course. And of course, we have the, the, the ongoing contested case hearing at the state level as to whether and under what conditions uh, uh, the Navy um, should have a continued permit to use Red Hill. And I'm very supportive of that process and, and want to see it finished. And, you know, I, I just checked this morning on the latest, uh, the status of the leaks and the, the probe into what caused the more most recent one in May of the pipelines up there at Red Hill. Uh, Still no report back as to when that's coming? Does your office know anything more? Well, we, we have been in touch with the Navy to make sure that they finish that uh, stu- that review and, and uh, study and, and report as soon as possible and that it's as full as possible. Um, they believe that uh, uh, some of the initial numbers um, that they reported uh, are, will, will not be uh, you know at that level uh, once they com- conclude their report. Um, but... Um, we're trying to get them to conclude it as soon as possible because it's important for people to know exactly what did happen and why. And in the same breath, um, uh, of course, uh, we have also been trying to get uh, secondary containment into the tanks themselves. Uh, so in other words, you you have just not just one wall, but it, but two walls. Um, and um, but the, but in the same breath, you obviously need to take a look at the piping and the infrastructure around those tanks as well. So. Uh, I'm actually um, directly working right now on an amendment to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which is our annual um, authorization of our military uh, to require a much higher level of testing um, as to the infrastructure around those tanks. Yeah, I mean, uh, the whole issue is the protection of our aquifer. Uh, It's a natural resource. I mean, you know how important that is here, uh, you know, in, in this island community. Uh, yeah, I was just down there uh, by uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, because of the most recent leak of, of the pipelines over there and uh, was sur- surprised to see, you know, the progress of rail coming through that area, you know, and, uh, you know, th- there is lots of uh, concern about, you know, where do we go with rail and how far do we complete it to Ala Moana, uh, you know, or do we stop it at Middle or, or stop it at Lagoon? But uh, as you mentioned earlier, Obviously, we want to make sure that what what plan we have, we can afford to fund, uh, because it's just. I mean, when you think of twelve billion dollars, when it could have been two, three, five. Any thoughts on that? 
Well, my role at the federal level um, is a couple of fold. First of all, um, the federal government through the uh, um, FTA, the Federal Transit Administration, uh, committed in an agreement to fund $1.5 billion, of which half has been paid um, and half has not been paid yet. Um, and so uh, we definitely, um, the FTA is concerned, as everybody is, about the, the plan. And can there be a plan that actually uh, the public will trust uh, that is carefully thought out, that handles the contingencies, that answers the question about whether we should or should not stop, you know, here or downtown or at Middle Street or Ala Moana. The FTA is going to require that plan before they cut loose any further monies, and I think that's a that's a proper position for the FTA to take. Uh, but the the actual decisions. Um, on what to do about rail are state and county decisions. And there are some very tough decisions for our, for our leaders to make about um, if you're going to continue this rail project, um, obviously your sources of funding today, even if you got all that federal money, are not going to be sufficient uh, to, to, to complete it. And so you've got to make that call. And so we're trying to be supportive of that, but the, those calls are in the state and county government. Uh, I know uh, Mayor Caldwell at the time was saying the simplest thing is just to you know continue the excise tax uh, charge. Uh, do you support that idea? I mean, I don't know whether I do or don't support it, but it certainly, and it's not my kuleana, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a state and county government call, but that is one opportunity um, or option, I would say, to continue funding. Prob- probably is the simplest option is to continue the surcharge on the excise tax, 4.5, so the, 5 per- the 0.5% on this island, um, out over a longer period of time than it was originally intended to go. And that, that I mean, just to be really blunt and honest about it, that's the that's the simplest way to do it. Um, it's not the only way that, that it can be done, but it certainly is is uh, um, uh, the option that um, um, if you're going to continue it and if you're serious about uh, getting your funding source in place, that's probably the option that fits the situation. And frankly, that's what the FTA is going to be looking for if they commit any further money to this project is, okay, are you guys willing to pony up and actually put it down? And that's what you're going to do. All right, switching gears, we have another written comment. Stan from Kailua writes in, uh, what is your stance on more comprehensive recycling programs? Well, I'm, I'm fully supportive of recycling programs, and the federal government is, is uh, very supportive of recycling. In, uh, in our appropriations committee, we, we fund a variety of federal contributions uh, to recycling programs across the board. And I would say here that it's not just you know, um, uh, the civilian, but the military side of it, too. Uh, because they obviously are 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 deeply involved in our communities and they're committed to recycling as well um, the decisions about exactly what kind of recycling programs to to implement and where and how and under what conditions are again state and county government decisions uh, and i view my goal as as um you know you guys make the call and then i'll try to help you however i can you know, uh, you're back in town uh, at a time when um, the military is soliciting public input. Uh, we've got a number of uh, uh, leases, state leases that are up. Uh, there are lands that are leased to the military. Uh, the U.S. Army is proposing to, re- to renew those leases uh, on Oahu with Makua, Kahuku, Paumoho, uh, and there's also Pahakaloa on the Big Island, um, all you know, military training le- uh, leases. Uh, the Army initially leased the land in 1964. It's looking to renew the leases, which start in 2029. Uh, but here's a, a, a concern expressed by a listener, retired Army Colonel Ann Wright. 
she was in the army and, and in the reserves for 29 years. She worked as a diplomat in various U.S. embassies for 16 years. Here's what she had to say. These lands that we're talking about now, the nearly 30,000 lands of, uh, that were leased uh, uh, in 1964 and uh, you know, they're coming up for releasing in, in 2029, uh, are not critical to the national uh, security plan for the United States. These are lands that can easily be returned to, to the, uh, the state of Hawaii, to the Hawaiian people, uh, without any damage to our national security. There are, you know, there's 133,000 acres that are at Poakaloa. Uh, there are thousands of other acres that are up at uh, uh, Schofield Barracks. There are thousands of acres that are over at uh, Kaneohe Marine Base. There are thousands of acres that are at Pearl Harbor. It's not like uh, the not leasing these 30,000 acres means that the U.S. military is being kicked out of Hawaii at all. It still will, Hawaii will, as a state, will have one of the largest military concentrations that the United States has. Right. So it's not an anti-military thing. It's just a realistic look at how much the military really needs for its training that was uh, a retired uh, Army uh, Colonel Ann Wright. Uh, many thoughts on what you heard her say? Well, I, I know Colonel Wright. Okay. Um, uh, we have interacted uh, many times over the course of a long period of uh, a time, um, and we disagree on this subject. Um, I, I say that with respect to her service and to her commitment. Uh, but essentially, Colonel Wright um, does believe that the military should get out of Hawaii, and um, I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that... I believe that as we look to, to, the, to, to the next generations, the next century of a, a, an ascendant China of so much you know, difficulty throughout the Indo-Pacific um, that um, our country needs our military uh, to be present in the Indo-Pacific um, and our Hawaii needs our military uh, to be here. I can tell you in no uncertain terms that the military itself completely disagrees with her statement that uh, this is not necessary to our national security. The military views these training facilities as critical uh, to our national security. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that the military gets to do whatever it wants with our land. I don't believe that. I think the military have to be good neighbors. I think the military have to try to accommodate uh, legitimate concerns about the use of our lands. Uh, and I think the military um, um, needs to needs to utilize our lands in a way that is fair on both sides. Uh, but I'm not of the view uh, that these uh, training leases uh, should be canceled and that the military's presence in Hawaii uh, should end. And uh, frankly, if we don't have those training bases, uh, the military will significantly downsize its presence here because it needs to train somewhere. And these bases are valuable training uh, um, assets for them. Uh, in their positioning in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and, and so um, I welcome the military going out for public comment. These are state lands, they're state leases. Um, people should have their input on it. We should have this debate, but this is where I am on it. Um, and, and so um, I, I don't subscribe to the, let's get rid of the military view. And, and by the way, let's, let's um, make one more comment along those lines. And I don't think this is, this is, this is the reason to keep the military here, but let's recognize that the defense um, effort of our country is our number two industry here. Let's just be really clear about that. And, and um, throughout COVID-19, it was our number one industry. And if we had been down travel and tourism and defense, we would not be far worse of a world of hurt here. And so as we talk about diversifying our economy, let's remember that diversification should be at least two industries. <laughs> 
uh, as opposed to one to start with and then let's move from there. And so um, let's realize the impact uh, that the military has uh, to our own economy and, and, and community here and, and balance that against legitimate concerns as Col- Colonel uh, Wright has. Uh, well, this is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guest in studio today is U.S. Representative Ed Case. Uh, you can join our discussion by calling 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You know, the military is stepping up uh, its uh, training exercises. I think this week we've got a group from San Diego. I think last month we had uh, the French um, um, military here. Uh, uh, I know... In my neighborhood, I see lots of complaints about uh, the noise from helicopters, and, and a lot of them is just you know military training with the the, the uh, choppers coming over from uh, Kaneohe. Uh, but uh, we, you know, th- it's still helicopter noise, and I know the helicopter safety is uh, a big thing with you. We actually also um, just got another written comment and from East Honolulu, Mark from East Honolulu. He says the helicopter noise over. East Oahu has become so loud, it's abusive. So what steps can you take to help reduce that? Well, um, I completely agree with it, and I've been um, um, very committed uh, to reducing um, helicopter um, safety concerns and community disruption over my over my uh, time of my return to Congress. Now, as to the military, um, the military um, has not always been a good neighbor along these lines, and we noticed it more during COVID-19 I saw the complaints in my office go up for the military because there weren't any tour helicopters in the in the sky. And the military, I think, mistakenly thought that, well, because there weren't any tour helicopters, they could start flying over, you know, uh, neighborhoods again. And, and plus that they have the Ospreys, which are the tilt-winged rotors, which vibrate down on, on, you know, on homes. And so I had to go to the military and say, what the heck are you doing? You know, get out and start following your flight paths over the ocean again. You don't get to cut over cut over Honolulu. Uh, so I think that that problem is down a little bit. At least that's my impression. It's still there. Um, they still need to get to some airports like, you know, Wheeler and, and K-Bay. And so you're going to have some effect from that. But far and away, the greatest disruption are the tour helicopters, uh, which are just at record levels. Uh, I have, um, I've tried to work with them for the, for the better part of uh, two years plus to, to get them to voluntarily understand uh, what their consequence is on the ground. I've come to the conclusion that they do not intend to um, alter their business model, which is to fly wherever they can, wherever, whenever they can, however they can, and to do it at high volume and to, and to honestly uh, skirt the rules all the time in terms of, you know, where they should be flying. I just, I just uh, was out by Pearl Harbor yesterday. They're not supposed to be flying over P- Ford Island and, and the Arizona Memorial and disturbing that, and yet they were. Um, and, and so, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is not an industry that has decided to be a good neighbor and accommodate concerns. And the only way to, to fix it is um, legislatively. So I am pursuing uh, legislation in Congress to, to give communities like Hawaii a lot more say in the, the, the regulation of, of where the tour helicopters, you know, fly. I wish it was different. Um, you know, East Honolulu the other day at Hanama Bay, tour helicopters going right over it uh, when they could have been. They could have given the tourists a great ride a mile offshore. And, uh, you know, the uh, the concern over the noise and the safety, you know, we did have the fatal crashes of, uh, out at uh, Dillingham Field. Oh, we had the one in Kailua, you know, and I know uh, wh- where are we at on that legislation? Is it making you making headway on that or? 
Well, certainly um, the legislation is in, uh, but um, greater than that is is really the the highlighting of uh, significant concerns by the National uh, Transportation and Safety Board, which is the NTSB, which they have to clean up after crashes, and so they report on what has to happen, and they tell the Federal Aviation Administration, which actually regulates the helicopters, what they should be doing. But the FAA has not followed the NTSB. Uh, recommendations and so uh, we are trying to legislatively force them to do that now that's not going to take away from a bunch of cowboys going into fog uh, on 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 Kauai and killing you know seven people in one aircraft airplane craft it's it still comes down to the business model and what uh, pilots feel they can do or should do to to maintain the high frequency flights even in bad weather um, and so you know bottom line is uh, you, you've got to get into the regulatory aspects of that far more you know, uh, as we look at the military's presence in the uh, throughout the Pacific, you know, we hear concerns about the threats, you know, uh, from China, from Asia. Uh, you know, there's a concern out in the Philippines with the Chinese and the Spratly Islands over the tug of war who owns those islands. Uh, you know, we've watched what's going on in Samoa with the uh, election there and the concern about uh, Chinese investment, you know, into the harbors. I mean, how are you looking at this specific region? Well, first of all, I'm very eyes wide open about China. Uh, maybe 10, 20 years ago, I, I, I had some hope, like many of us, that China would, would join the community of nations around the world and, and, and uh, decide that it was a good, uh, a good thing overall to, to kind of, uh, you know, cooperate or not cooperate, but partner with uh, the, the countries of the world towards a what we call an international rules-based order, which is, um, um, you know, I guess one way of saying that we all try to set some international rules and follow them so that we don't get into wars. And, you know, we haven't had a world war in 75 years, so there's some value to saying that. Um, and also on the human rights side and the democracy side, but the last 20 years have taught me that China is nothing more or less than a country that wants to do what it wants to do um, without regard um, to really um, anybody else um, in the world. And so, um, we have to cooperate with them. We, we are entwined with them economically more than I think we should be, but we are. Uh, and so they're not going away. They're a major country. And, uh, but you've got to you know, uh, be very realistic about what China is trying to accomplish. It's trying to dominate um, our part of the world, the Indo-Pacific. Um, and my focus has been on the national level uh, to make sure that we um, all see that reality and are committing our resources to what we need to do to to hold China in check along those lines and to help our friends and allies um, and, and some that today are not our friends and allies that uh, may, may get concerned about China over time. My own particular focus has been on our backyard, um, the, 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 the community of the Pacific Islands. So uh, Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia, the Pacific Islands themselves, uh, of which, you know, of course, our heritage is there, our culture is there, we are part of. Uh, the Pacific Islands, and we have a special role to play here in the Pacific Islands, and and in many ways it benefits us right here too with institutions such as the East-West Center, the Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies, uh, and so many other institutions that are focused on the Pacific Islands, and yet our country has not, um, has really lagged in terms of its focus on the Pacific Islands, and China has seen that and is trying to come in and you know, build uh, airstrips uh, um, at uh, at countries like uh, you know Kiribati, which is the closest uh, one of the closest Pacific islands to us, uh, and so we need to boost up our engagement. I've introduced a legislation to that effect, uh, formed the Pacific Islands Caucus in the U.S. House. That's a collection of members, both Republicans and Democrats, who share my views 
Uh, we act collectively. We actually just got our bill uh, into a much larger bill, which is designed to um, ramp up our country's engagement with really the broader Indo-Pacific. So um, a lot of um, concerns there, but also opportunities. Well, you know, uh, you talk about uh, Micronesia, and I, I know there is, you know, concern, you know, about Chinese presence in the area, uh, you know, in, even like in Tinian, I know a, a, a brother who used to uh, go there for military training said he was he was surprised to see a, a hotel pop up there, you know, many years ago. And uh, he went to go order something at the restaurant and it was all in Chinese. And they had to actually go off property to find someone who could translate into English. And it was just, you know, wait a minute, this is, you know, in the Pacific, in the U.S. And, and so it was kind of a head scratcher. Well, I mean that, but that's what China does. China's China um, aims to. Um, uh, it's not like they go out there with, uh, you know, at least at least thus far, uh, with a huge navy or military force and conquer islands. But they it definitely tries to, uh, you know, find island countries that and locations that are desperate for aid that are that uh, um, um, have no have no real choice but to take aid from China. But it comes with a lot of strings attached. Uh, of various shapes and forms. And it's not always the government. It's also Chinese businesses are very, and as we all know in, in, in China, there's no real distinction between government and business and nonprofit and media uh, and the courts. Uh, it's all one big <laughs> ball of wax. So in Tinian, in that case, that was a, that was actually a very, very large Chinese casino, mm -hmm. casino um, yes. that, that um, you know, um, China, China developed there. And of course, Tinian is part of our country. Um, Congress, uh, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Um, but Ch China certainly had its goals there. Do you find it hard um, with your uh, colleagues back in Congress? I mean, do they get it <laughs> as far as, you know, the COFA, the Compact of Free Association, and why this exists and, and what we come up uh, against? I mean, uh, the answer is uh, it's a lot easier than it used to be. When I was in Congress the last time, 02 to 07, it was very hard to get uh, members of Congress to focus on the Indo-Pacific and uh, generally and on China specifically. And I'm not sure I was sufficiently focused um, even then, even though that, uh, you know, I came from the Indo-Pacific. Um, and and uh, a lot has changed in 15 years from that perspective. A ton has changed. And so um, there is much more attention uh, to China at the very highest reaches of our government. Um, certainly, for example, uh, President Biden uh, just uh, two days ago spoke um, um, to the um, Pacific Islands Forum, which is the organization that kind of is, is an umbrella organization, for kind of the United Nations for the Pacific Islands. And he spoke. Now, that's a big deal uh, for him to spend that kind of uh, time and, and uh, you know, um, outreach to make that connection to them. President Trump, to his credit, uh, hosted at the White House the presidents of uh, Palau, uh, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands about two years ago. And so um, we, we see outreach across the board that indicates uh, the severity of, of the, um, again, the challenges and the opportunities. Because I don't want to be dire about this. I just want to be realistic about it. Yeah, uh, a big concern, um, you know, just how a lot of the, the, the uh, congressmen and women uh, view us out here in the Pacific and, and whether, um, like I said, the, their eyes glaze over. But it sounds like we're making progress. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that um, you, you, you've got a lot of 
Um, you've got a lot of members of Congress that are still fairly Eurocentric. And of course, our country has been in the Middle e- in, in wars in the Middle East for 20 years now. And so um, naturally and, and um, 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 uh, justifiably, there should be a lot of attention there. Uh, but um, and so, you know, yes, there are certainly there are certainly a lot of members of Congress for whom they don't wake up in the morning and think about the Indo-Pacific or China. I mean, I do. But um, there's more people like me than there used to be. So there's a much more of a kind of a working group inside inside uh, Congress that you can actually get things done with. And the fact that our that are uh, boosting long term U.S. engagement in the Pacific Blue Pacific Act that we introduced um, is going to, I hope, move through the Congress is, is one indication of that. Well, we have a couple of minutes left. I don't know. Um, anything uh, uh, on your mind that you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty much everything you ask me is on my mind. Um, well, if, if I can, I'll, I'll just kind of go back to some of the basics that I always like to uh, uh, reinforce. Um, you know, I look at my job in three buckets. Uh, one is my contribution to national uh, leadership, national decisions. We've certainly talked about infrastructure from that perspective. Uh, the number two bucket is how can I help Hawaii? Uh, how can I get the federal government to help? We talked a little bit about my appropriations uh, committee, which um, you know basically allocates about 1.5 trillion in federal funds every year. Senator Schatz is on the other side on appropriations. And that's a that's a good solid, you know, tag team, I guess you would say. And by the way, uh, in the same breath, uh, Congressman Kaheli uh, has been a fantastic partner in his introductory uh, six months in in Congress. Really made a made a difference. And Senator Hirono is, is, so it's a great delegation uh, right now. I'm really happy with our delegation. And the third area is individual constituent concerns, uh, social security, immigration, veterans affairs, uh, COVID-19, renters assistance. These are folks that, you know, we're talking about big picture stuff, but they just want to solve their own issue. And that's a critical part of my job is to try to get them answers. So case.house.gov case.house.gov is how to get into my office. A lot of information, a lot of resources, and and how to get in touch with us. Okay, and then on the the COVID front, uh, you know, I know lots of concern about, uh, you know, the funding and and hopefully the federal money that has been set aside uh, will be released, whether it's from, you know, for rental assistance or or health care. Um, well, yeah. we've released that. Yes. Um, you know, that, it's a matter of doling it out now. <laughs> it's, it's a matter of the state and county governments allocating it, and that was one of the major issues that drove the, the extension of, of, of the um, uh, renter's um, eviction moratorium at the federal level was the fact that we had funded hundreds of billions of dollars, but it hadn't gotten out to assist. All right. Well, Congressman Case, thank you. I really appreciate your time here uh, in Hawaii, and uh, I know you're headed back to D.C., but thanks again for joining us on today's show. Do you have a comment to share about today's show? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, check out the Conversation Podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.